0: I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see all of you. And um, happy post Hanukkah, God willing. The lights of Hanukkah should keep us going throughout the rest of this dark, snowy winter. Darkest time of the year, actually. Keyslave and Teves, we're gonna talk a little bit about that and how we can use the elements that we've been working with and talking about to help us in this time period. So this class was sponsored by Avshalom and Aviva Pesachov. I think, I hope I pronounced that right. And it's sponsored um, in memory of Azadi I'm not sure if it's her or his. his. Uh, Yehuda Ben Hinda. His yortzeit is, I think, today. He was a man of courage, wisdom, honesty, and kindness. May his neshama have an aliyah. And Aviva, thank you. You also sponsored this in honor of my birthday, which was last week. So, thank you so much. And all the kind words that you wrote me, but I'm not going to share them with everybody. But, thank you. And um, I also wanted to just thank Gail Weiss again, who sponsored the entire month of key slave classes. Thank you to Gail, my neighbor from across the street in Manhattan Beach, Brooklyn. Okay, so we. Um, I wanted to end last week and also fill you in on Hanukkah a little bit, but I'll try to do a little bit of that this week. So we've been dealing with the element of fire. And of course, we said that fire is the highest of all the elements. It's the most spiritual. Um, As we know, fire in, in terms of the physical aspects of fire, fire is something that's always rising, right? And fire, we know, can be extremely destructive. Fire is passion, right? Passion in a good way, channeled in a good way, uh, creates all kinds of wonderful things in the world. Passion in a negative way, of course, is translated into anger, generally speaking, destroying relationships, criticism, and all the things that, uh, you know, we don't want to use our fire for. So, um Last week, we mentioned that the narrative in the Torah that teaches us about the element of fire, again, gone awry, is the city of Sodom. Hmm. The city of Sodom, we know, was destroyed through fire. And the uh, characteristics of the people that lived there were those that um, exemplified, I don't want to use that word. Whatever, though, they were the character traits of fire, again, not used in the correct way. We know that Sodom was a very wealthy place, was a very beautiful place. Lot chooses to go there when he and Abraham separate. And we know that they had a lot of strange laws. They weren't, they weren't allowed to have guests in Lot. Guests were tortured if they happened to wander in there. And it came from an incredible amount of arrogance egocentricity, um, you know, affluence to the point that, you know, we don't want any strangers, we don't want anybody who doesn't belong in our club, and we're going to keep them out no matter what. And of course, this is the opposite of the Jewish idea that when you have a lot of blessings in your life, when, you know, God willing, Baruch Hashem, you have what you need physically, materially, when things are going well for you, that instead of saying, Kohi yadi," I did this, I'm the one who created this, right? It's my strength and my power. Rather the Jewish way of using fire is to humble ourselves and to recognize that everything we have is a gift from the Ribona Shel Olam, is a gift from the one who created us. And we're meant to use it in the right way. We're meant to use it to build relationships, to build ourselves, to, uh, you know, bring people closer to God through the way that we behave. And this is what we want to do. So interestingly, we said that the chakun, just as every single element in the, in, in the, is, um, is uh, portrayed in the Torah through those four stories that we mentioned, right? Kain and Havel is earth. Noah's flood was water. The tower of Babel was wind. Okay. Um, and, and of course, this, this fire is Sodom. We know that each one of these narratives have a tikkun in the proper way to use this element through the introduction of the avot and the imahot and the foundation stones of the Jewish people. What were built on, right? they teach us how to use these elements and channel them properly because again each one of us is composed of these four elements in the same way that the world around us is composed of these four elements we are a microcosm of that which is out there Uh, we are an olam katan right if you kill one person god forbid it's like you destroyed an entire world If you save a person, it's like you saved an entire world, literally, is what we're saying here. And each of the avos and emails come to correct things. So we talked about fire having a lot to do with leadership, right? Because a fiery personality is somebody with leadership qualities who, again, has this desire to rise to the top. And we said that everybody has leadership qualities. Some people are greater than others. Rabbi Sacks said, you know, good leaders create, uh, create followers, but great leaders create other leaders. So, you know, there's different levels to leadership. And we said that Yosef and Yehuda, who we've actually been looking at and discussing a lot in the Parshiot of the last few weeks leading up to Hanukkah and even today, right? The parsh this week is Vayigash. And the very first words, Vayigash Yehuda, Right. It features the character of Yehuda who we're going to speak about in more depth today. But we did speak a little bit about Yose. And we said that the danger with leadership, the danger with power, again, fire is the ego, is that a person will start feeling like they're better than other people. I think there's a quote, I don't know who said it, power, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That it goes together with power and leadership, that a person can think, you know, I'm above the law. My husband's actually mentioned this sometimes that sometimes you see when people climb to very high positions, it's almost like they become so egocentric and egotistical that they feel that they're untouchable, that, you know, they can do anything now and, you know, they'll never get caught. Or nobody will ever, you know, it, they're beyond scrutiny because it's, it's them and they can lose their sense of reality even in terms of what's permissible and what's forbidden. Um, you know, charismatic leaders, this can happen very easily. So we said that together with this greatness, one of the primary ingredients for success is humility, is anevil. And we said that we see this a lot with Yosef. No matter what happened to Yosef in his life, he always attributed everything back to Hashem, right? Whatever was happening to him, whether it was good or bad, he was living with Hashem through all of it. If I'm in this place, if I'm in this dungeon, there's a reason, right? When I'm taken to the great greatest heights of power, right? He swept out of jail and all of a sudden it seems like in the blink of an eye he's he's you know second next to the king of Egypt ruling the land in charge of the economy no one's greater than him and during all of this whenever he's asked anything many of his comments in the Torah are it's not me it's Hashem right it's Hashem who interprets the dreams it's Hashem who gives me the wisdom it's not about me it's about Hashem So this we know is a successful ingredient to being a leader is to always keeping Hashem in the picture. Okay. We're going to see that David HaMelef who is sort of the uh, continuation of Yehuda represents also this incredible idea of, of leadership and humility working together. Um, So We said that Yosef doesn't take credit for himself. He recognizes that everything can be taken away from him at any moment. We said that to be humble means you have to have good self-esteem. You have to have deep appreciation of your own self-worth. You have to have self-acceptance of your positive and negative traits. Know who you are. And of course, focus on your positive And I was listening, actually, to Rabbi Sittner. He's on a podcast with the author of this book that we've been learning, The Four Elements. I just stumbled upon it. And he actually gave a course called Rise on Self-Esteem. And basically, well, I'm going to end with it. But, you know, we can have a lot of good intentions about growth, spiritual growth, working on our self-esteem. But the idea is, is that you can read books, you can go to seminars, there's, if you don't actually do the work, then nothing's really going to happen, nothing's going to change. So we're going to talk, hopefully, maybe in the next class more, with the end of this book that I've been uh, using, which is really practical tools for how to apply what we know about the elements into our life in a very real way with exercises and things that we can do, okay? I hope that, that that's something that you'll enjoy. Okay, so I want to move on to Yehuda because he's really teaches us other things about leadership. Now, one of the primary lessons that Yehuda teaches us, and we see this in Parshas Yeshev when we're first introduced to the story of Yosef, And then the story of Yosef all of a sudden is interrupted by this story of Yehuda and Tamar. I'm sure that you're all familiar with it. Now, you know, not to get too heavily into the story, but basically Yehuda um, Yehuda had three sons. Two of those sons marry Tamar. The first one dies, they do the mitzvah of Yibum, which is that you marry the brother right of the one who died in order to carry on his name and carry on his seed so that children will be born from that mishpacha and basically Yehuda's second son also dies because he doesn't want to make Tamar pregnant for whatever reason that's a whole nother thing right women are more beautiful before they're they're pregnant supposedly after that it's all downhill right so for the wrong reasons he keeps her you know keeps whatever he he doesn't want to go there, so the point is is that she, he also dies, and there's one third son that's left, and of course Yehuda the father is afraid to give him to Tamar, which he's supposed to do because she's a husband killer, right, whatever you want to call it and anyway, but yehuda but Tamar knows that a child is supposed to come from her, and that eventually that child will lead to the Davidic dynasty, and to Mashiach. So she disguises herself as a prostitute. She covers herself heavily with a veil. And Yehuda, who's walking along, ends up spending the night with her. And in the morning, she basically says to him, I want you to give me something of yours. That's going to be the payment, you know? And he gives her, I think, his staff and his cloak. Anyway, the story goes further, where basically... It's discovered that Tamara is pregnant. Obviously, you know she had an illicit relationship with somebody, and her bro- her father in law Yehuda is the one who brings her to per- prosecution. And just as you know she's, he's about to condemn her to death, she says, "Whoever owns this staff and this coat, this is the person who is the father of this child." And of course, Yehuda realizes it has this moment of obvious struggle of whether or not to admit that he's the owner of these objects. So the greatness of Yehuda, whose name actually comes from the verb lehodot, right, to thank it says that when Leah gave birth to Yehuda, Yehuda was the fourth child. It was the first time, so to speak, that somebody came and thanked Hashem from the word Toda. Why was she thanking Hashem? Because she was saying, there's four mothers. We know that there's supposed to be 12 sons. Each of us are supposed to have three if we do the math. And Hashem, you've given me extra with this fourth son. And so I thank you and she calls him Yehuda. Now another meaning of the word toda or lehodot is the word is is the uh, verb to admit. Okay? On a very simple level, whenever we're saying thank you to somebody, we're basically admitting that they've done something for us, that perhaps we couldn't have done for ourselves. Now, saying thank you is not a natural human instinct, which is why you know, as mothers, how much of our breath do we spend, right? I mean, I remember even when my, you know, girls were teenagers, I'd say, did you say thank you? You say thank you, mom, you know, like, I have to hold myself back, you know, now that they're married. Right? You know, it's like something that we're programmed, right? To say, did you say thank you? Don't forget to say thank you. Come on. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Right? Thank you. Thank you. Why is that? Right? Because human beings come into the world, interestingly, it's like we come into the world for the first couple of years, our every need is being taken care of, right? If we're growing up in a functional Environment, you cry, somebody picks you up, your diaper's dirty, gets changed, you're hungry, you get the food, right? Everybody's running around like crazy taking care of your needs. All of a sudden, I, I don't know what age, maybe three or four, or whatever, all of a sudden you wake up, everybody's asking you to say thank you, right? Well, you already got used to the fact that you never had to say thank you. And this is the way it's supposed to be. And now all of a sudden, everybody wants you to say thank you. So there is a certain ego that gets in the way of wanting to admit, of wanting to say thank you, and we have to train ourselves. But here in the story with Yehuda, we're talking about a whole other level of the verb lehodo, which really means to admit, to admit a mistake, to have the courage, which a great leader has to have, to admit that he did wrong, that he was wrong. And Rabbi Sachs has beautiful things to say about this, actually in this week's Parsha. Because not only does Yehuda admit in this situation with Tamar, but we see him in this week's Parsha also. Yosef, of course, was testing his brothers before he was going to reveal himself to see to what degree the brothers had remorse over what they had done to him. And of course, it was Yehuda's idea to take Yosef out of the pit and sell him. He says, what game will we have if we kill our brother and cover his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not harm him with our own hands. After all, he is our brother, our flesh and blood. Now, the fact that the brothers agreed with him, the Torah says, you know, maybe if Yehuda said, let's take him out of the pit and take him home to daddy. They also would have agreed with him, but he didn't go there. He didn't care enough about Yosef and his life and was willing to sell him as a slave. And now we see the exact opposite parallel. Here's Yehuda in front of Yosef now, who's the king of Egypt, who he still does not yet know that this is his brother, who he sold into slavery, right? And he, Yehuda, has stepped up to the plate to say, Don't take Binyamin as a slave. Please send him back to my father. He's the favorite, right? The same favorite who was Yehuda, who they wanted to kill. Now they're protecting the favorite, the Ben Zakunim, right? And take me as a slave in his stead. So Yehuda's gone full circle. And this is why Rabbi Sachs explains that the Jewish people are not called um, Yosefim, right? We're not called the children of Yosef. And even though we're called B'nai Yisrael, right? That we're the children of Israel, which is the second name for Yaakov. Hold on, where is this? Okay. In the end, we ended up being called Yehudim right? Jews, that's the word for Jews, right? Yehudim, which is after Yehuda. And Rabbi Sack says that after the division of the kingdom and the conquest of the north by the Assyrians, that's when we became known as Yehudim, Yehudim, for it was the tribe of Judah who dominated the kingdom of the south and they who survived the Babylonian exile. But he says more that the reason that we're called Yehudim is because Yehuda was really the first Baal Tshuva in the the story, meaning somebody who sinned, who did wrong, who was put back, so to speak, in exactly the same situation again, where he could have turned his back on the second brother, the favorite. And rather what we say the Rambam describes as complete Tshuva is the first step is admitting you did wrong, right? Before we get to the complete shuva. The second is saying, I don't wanna ever do this again. But what's called complete teshuva, knowing that you actually did it, is being back in the exact same situation with all of the exact struggles and this time choosing correctly. This is called perfect shuva, okay? And Yehuda, or the Yehudim, the Jewish people, right? What the Torah teaches us is, you know, the makom omdim tzedikim Gamurim lo omdim, that in the place where Tshuva stand, a person who does wrong and admits, that is a higher place than somebody who was born perfect, so to speak, born from from birth on a level of a tzaddik, and never sins. Greater is the one who goes away and comes back. Higher, so to speak, is that person than somebody who was never tempted in the first place. Okay, we've spoken about this before. But the fact that we Jews are called Yehudim after this person who really was one of the greatest leaders, we know the kings come from Yehuda. We know eventually that David Hamelech came from Yehuda, and we know that eventually Mashiach will come from Yehuda, this place where there was a lot of um, failure, right? Great potential for leadership, but failure. And then it was turned around by admitting being vulnerable and humble enough to admit failure and try again. And that is the mark of great leadership. It says Yehuda more than anyone else in the Torah changes. Callousness has been replaced with concern. Indifference to his brother's fate has been transformed into courage. This is a highly significant moment in the history of the human spirit. Yehuda is the first Balchuva in the Torah. Anyway, this is just also teaching us again the power of teshuva. So just to end with a little bit more from Rabbi Sacks, he says, Yosef, just to compare the two leaders again, Yosef is known consistently as the Sadi, Yosef HaTzadi, right? He's given all kinds of challenges and he rises to them. But Yehuda is a penitent, the first in the Torah. Yosef becomes Mishnah Lamelech, second to the king, but Yehuda becomes the father of Israel's kings. Where the penitent Yehuda stands, even the perfectly righteous Yosef cannot stand. Again, however great an individual may be in virtue of his or her natural character, greater still is the one who is capable of growth and change. And this began with Yehuda. Okay. So I just want to show you in the name Yehuda itself. I printed it out for you so you can see. You see the name? So you'll see, I, I, I put a box around the Dalit because you'll see that all the other letters of Yehuda, the Yud, the He, the Vav and the hay spell God's name. The name of God that we don't say. And it's interrupted by a Dalit. And Dalit is always uh, connotating a pauper. A dal is called a pauper, right? Interestingly, even in the letters of Aleph Beit, Gimel, Dalit, they often show that the Gimel is reaching out with its foot. And Gimel always stands for Gimilut Chasadim, kindness. And it's followed by the letter Dalit. Which the word itself, Dalit, means a pauper, right? The letter Dalit, the meaning of the word Dalit is pauper. So the Gimel is outstretching its leg, it's turned towards the Dalit to give. Anyway, here we see in the name Yehuda, the greatest leader from where the Jewish kings will come, that combined with the name of God is the letter of humility, right? And as I said last week, there's a pasuk, I don't remember where it's from, where God himself says, wherever you see my greatness, that is also where you will see my humility. Actually, it comes up at the beginning of creation when God says, let us make man. I've mentioned this before that the rabbis ask, what do you mean, let us make man? Who's he talking to? Who's Hashem talking to? Are there other gods? Are there other powers in the world that God needs in order to make man? And Rashi there teaches us that God was so interested in revealing his humility to mankind, even at the expense of people thinking that there would be more than one God. right? But this was worth it because of this lesson of the greater you are, the more humble you need to be right the more you climb the more you have to be constantly aware right whether you're climbing in affluence whether you're climbing in position you have to be constantly aware that together with that climb there's going to be a lot of ego involved and if you aren't constantly paying attention to that and asking yourself the questions you know Why am I doing this? Why do I need this kavod? Is this for me or is this for Hashem? You know, why do I need everybody to know what I'm worth at my bar mitzvah or at the wedding that I'm making, right? Doesn't it show greater restraint when everybody knows you could have made a wedding that was the talk of the town? And I remember this actually, there were very wealthy people in my neighborhood in Manhattan Beach who probably owned half of it. And one wedding after the other, you know, you couldn't not walk away by saying that was so tasteful, that was so elegant and beautiful, but it was so understated compared to what it could have been. Now that takes being centered in your mind being centered in, again, sniut, right? Covering your ego. We said sniut means to cover your ego in our series, and being God-centered. Now, who am I trying to impress? Isn't it better if I give the money to tzedakah or to them or whatever it is, whatever the cheshbon is, than try to impress my guests, right? My daughter, often, my daughter I remember, said, you know, people basically only remember two types of weddings. They remember the ones that were really, really like, whoa, what's happening? Like, There's obviously no money at all. Like it's very serious, right? Or they remember the way over the top, crazy, ostentatious, you know, on the boat in the Riviera, I don't know, whatever. She said, they don't remember anything else in between in terms of, you know, something that takes your, you know, really affects you. So the point is, is that, you know, it takes, it takes working on one's Gaiva, natural ego, At the same time that one is rising, this is the fire element so that you are the master and you are not destroyed or taken in and over by um, everything that goes with power. Okay, so the habits of humble leaders. What are the habits of humble leaders? And of course, they write about people who are successful in the workplace. Who build these incredible companies. And usually they talk about these kind of leaders as praising others, being very grateful and thanking other people who work for them, building people up, telling them, pointing out what a good job they're doing in whatever area it is that they're working for them in, right? Um, Noticing the good, complimenting them, making people feel good. You know, I, 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 I don't know if I shared this story, I think I did. You know, it brings to mind that story quickly that I mentioned about this man named Stephen Carter, who was a professor at Yale, who wrote a book called Civility. And when he was a young child, he moved to, uh, in 1966, uh, at the height of tension in racial relations in the States, he and his family moved to a very white neighborhood in Washington. I should mention this was a black family. And in this book, Civility, Stephen Carter remembers this old Jewish woman. I mean, I picture her as an old Jewish woman named Sarah Kestenbaum, who he writes in this book, changed his life. And he never, ever forgot the power of a good deed, of a kindness, of raising people up, which takes a humility and a a real seeing people. Because he said that when they moved here, he said he knew it wasn't going to be good. Nobody looked at them on the street. Nobody talked to them. They weren't going to be getting play dates and it was not going to be good. And one day they were walking home from school. He with his brothers and this Jewish woman from across the street called them over and brought them up on the porch and served them drinks and cream cheese and jelly sandwiches. And he said that changed his life. And she was a role model for him of what it means to lift people up. So again, being a person like that takes a humility, uh, moving out of the way, right? Seeing the other person, which is all part of humility. And of course, criticism is the opposite. And criticism comes from arrogance, which is the fire, right? And of course, it also comes from low self-esteem. When we don't feel good about ourselves, When we're not happy with our life or what we're doing, we tend to focus on other people's shortcomings, other people's things that they need to fix, right? As we said, when you point a finger at somebody else, be careful because there's three pointing back at you, right? But, you know, when a person's happy and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in life and they're feeling fulfilled... And they've got their earth element and their water element and their wind element under control. Then they don't go to these negative places and we're more able to lift other people up because we've been able to conquer our own darkness and our own self-loathing and our own negative self-talk. But, you know, if you listen in sometimes, you know, I'm a failure. I could have been better. Why wasn't I a better mother? Why wasn't I a better spouse? Why wasn't I better? I mean, we are masters, especially women, at beating ourselves up for whatever didn't go right with our kids, with with anything, right? Especially with our kids, obviously, if you're blessed to have them, right? We're masters at that. And that is self-defeating right if you know something and you could change something then do it do it better right but don't worry you know we we all do the best we can with the tools that we have at the time that it's happening and nobody has a full toolbox you know we're all in the process of learning and do we make mistakes and could we have done things better and our relationships in general the most difficult so, yeah. For every human being, yes. And most people are not born with natural, perfect communication skills or evolved um, self-love in the right way. So we all do what we can. But really, we need to realize that when we criticize other people or burn other people up in order to feel a sense of rising, this is the negative manifestation of fire. We want fire to energize us, to move us forward, to feel, to make us feel fulfilled and passionate about the things that we love to do. Okay, again, the second habit of a humble leader, which we learned from Yehuda is vulnerability, the ability to admit that you're wrong, and to not see that as a sign of weakness, but rather as a sign of strength. Right, Ezehu Gibor, who is the strong person, the one who can conquer his Yetzer, the one who knows I have a problem with anger, I have a problem with stinginess, I have a problem with impatience. Right, I'm going to work on this. This is something I need to work on. So it's admitting. And recognizing that the real work begins within, not fixing everybody else around you. When you fix yourself, as they say, you fix the world. When you do the inner work and fix that olam katan, you are affecting the olam gadol in the greatest way that you possibly can. Okay? The third aspect of a great leader is empathic listening. We talked about this in SNEAS also, believe it or not, covering the ego is the ability to listen. Right? Instead of saying that smart comment, or hey, wait, I have to show you how clever I am, you know, the desire and the need to talk, give advice, let people know what you know, that's not always what people need. The greatest gift you can give somebody is your ear And just listening empathically and compassionately. And that is another aspect of great leadership. Great leadership. They know how to listen. They know when to speak. Right? And of course, another aspect is the ability to control one's temper. Losing your temper is connected to the destructive element of fire. It's the most destructive quality, force, qualitative force, and all of the attributes of the personality, right? There's no other worse Mida, the Torah teaches us, than anger. God basically says about himself, I don't know the source, I'm sorry, um, that, you know, there's no room for me and an egocentric, arrogant person right if there's an egocentric arrogant person around basically god says i'm out of here there's no there's no room for me here because this person has created has made himself into a god right they say that anger is a form of idol worship so i used to think about that and think well who's the idol well what's the idol the idol is you you've created right why are you angry because you didn't do it my way i want things done my way you know how dare you do this to me, right? Me is always at the center. It's the biggest thing. It's always large and everybody else is small. How dare you, right? So that's where anger comes from. That's where idol worship comes from. I'll just tell you a beautiful word that I love. It actually, there's a, it says in Tehillim, that God should protect me like the pupil of an eye. Okay, ishon eye and ish, and ishon, which is the word ish, which means man, right? Ishon is the word for the pupil of the eye. So I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Rabbi Kamenetsky or Rabbi Gifter. He was at an eye appointment, and he was thinking about this pasuk, And he said, do you know why the pupil of an eye is called an Ishon. He said, because when you are looking into the eyes of the other person, you see yourself in the pupil of their eye. And you appear as this tiny man, right? This ishon, this tiny person. When you have yud and nun at the end of a noun, it's diminutive. It makes it smaller. So ishon means really little man, okay? So Rabbi Gifter, I'll say it was Rabbi Gifter, was explaining that when you look into the eye of another person, you see yourself as you should see yourself, very small. This is how the humble person sees themselves. And you see the other person as large. He said, most of us have it backwards. We see the other person as small. We talk to other people as if they're less than, and we see ourselves as large. But he said, but if we look into the eyes of another person, we'll see things as they are supposed to be and as they really are in the eyes of a humble person. What can I learn from you? What can I gain from you? What can you teach me? What's bothering you? How can I help you? Wow, you must be upset because hurt people hurt people. What's going on? Right? This is the ability that we'd all love to have, especially in those triggering moments, those stressful times when we're elicited, you know, anger is elicited in us to be able to take a step back and assess things with a cool head. Now, again, we know, ladies, from all of these classes, that we're not um, judged by our primary responses. Right, Rabbi Tversky says, Rabbi Avram Tversky, Aleva Shalom says, we're not judged by our primary responses, but we do have to work to try and make our secondary response more of who we really would want to be, visualize how we really would have liked to react. Gee whiz, don't you sometimes think, if I had only made a joke about that, or if I had only retorted with something light, you know, it would have, gone so differently and you know sometimes even afterwards you think about the joke you could have made or you think about how you could have lightened it up or how you could have distracted the person anyway listen to the series on anger again if you haven't or you weren't with me then but there's a lot of tips there but the point is is when we lose our tempers we feel disrespected disrespected our ego is being flooded we feel under attack we start feeling this fight or flight And, of course, you can listen to this uh, series on self-esteem because we know that those who don't have a healthy self-esteem are more likely to lose their temper. However, those who can channel thoughts towards healthy self-esteem, seeking approval not from others but from Hashem, can channel their passion in an appropriate way. We said again in many of our classes that emotion discovers a problem, regesh, That feeling that we have, but it's not supposed to stay there. Emotion says there's something wrong here. There's something I don't like. There's something I have to change. There's something I have to say. There's something I have to do. But until we take that emotion and we channel it or bring it up to the place of the that then we can respond. But to respond from the regesh, it's not going to be good right? And we said that skilled people know how to do this. And I've often given this analogy, right? That if a a skilled surgeon is in the middle of a surgery, and God forbid, he happens to do something wrong, he makes a cut somewhere where he shouldn't have. So you want a surgeon who's going to rebound quickly, you know, not all of a sudden freak out and run out of the, you know, operating room and say, Oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do, right? Somebody's going to rebound quickly and say, okay, I had a moment of fright. I did something that I didn't mean to do. But now now I took it from my regesh. I brought it to my sechel, And now I'm going to correct this, right? This is what a skilled person does. And this is what we can do. The more we work on ourselves, okay? So Yehuda earned his place as a leader when he was willing to give up his life for Binyamin. We talked about that. Each of us must actualize our potential which is what gives us true satisfaction. Otherwise, what happens instead is we live a life where we compensate with false pride and a very fragile ego that brings us crashing down with the slightest insult. Again, we can cover up our weaknesses and our fragilities and the areas in our life where we need to work on ourselves, you know, with uh, false arrogance and fragile ego, or we can actually do the work and recognize that there's a lot of work to do because we all do have fragile egos. And it is so much easier to, you know, present this bravado to the world out there without actually doing the inner work of self-love in a positive way, in a good way, because you've earned it through your hard work. Okay, just to end, David HaMelech was another humble and fearless leader who comes through the line of Yehuda in a very circuitous way. We know that David HaMelech gave us the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, which basically there we say that every single emotion that any human being could ever experience in this world David HaMelech experienced it. On the one hand, he was the king of Israel, but we know that throughout his life, before becoming the king even, he was despised and debased. There was even questions about whether he was actually Jewish. His yichus coming from his great-grandmother Ruth, right? Um, But the book of Psalms is full of the ups and downs of his life. His own son wanted to kill him. Right, the king Shaul wanted to kill him, his father-in-law, and he went through everything. But through it all, he held holds on to Hashem. He's constantly doing tshuva and admitting his mistakes, and asking Hashem to come to him and admitting his weaknesses and crying on his pillow and all of the other tehillim that you know we all reach for whenever we're feeling lost and confused and wanting to bring Hashem. Presence and reality of Hashem closer to us. Okay, he relied on Hashem totally. He's our he's our role model for someone who asks Hashem for forgiveness, no matter how bad his sin. We start every Shemona Esri with the words Hashem's pasai tiftachu fi yagiti Open up my mouth so my lips can it can proclaim your praises. These are the words of David Hamelach who said this. After he had sinned, so to speak, with me, with um, Hatsheba, saying, God, I know I did wrong, but I can come back to you because nobody can ever do anything wrong enough that you won't accept them back. And that's how we begin every Shmona Esrei, right? I don't even deserve to open my mouth to talk to you, but I know that greater is the one who sins and returns than the one who never sinned at all. Back to Yehuda again right greater is the person who has the humility and the vulnerability and the ability to get rid of his ego and say god i need you i'm so weak i'm so easily tempted by things that don't serve me properly okay listen to this ladies just to end this idea where do we find david Ask the Gemara, where do we find him in the Torah? Where did God find David? The answer is, David was found in Sidon. Sidon, the city of fire. The city that was destroyed through fire. David's roots were born there in the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Everybody Remember? They think they're the last living people on earth after God has destroyed Sodom, And the daughters say, what are we going to do? The world is going to be empty. We have to do what we got to do. And they got their father drunk. And two nations were born from this union. We have Amon and Moab. And Moab literally means from my father." we also have a mitzvah in the Torah that says no Moabite can ever convert and join the Jewish people. Okay? That's a whole nother lecture, the, the Book of Ruth. But the point is, is and HaMelech, so to speak, was born in this place called Sidon, in the union, incestuous union between a father and his daughters. Daughter. Okay? From the lowest place, this is a, this is a klal. This is a principle about Mashiach, by the way, ladies. From the lowest place where you would never look, that is where greatness comes from. Lowliness and exceptionality go together. Humility and greatness. God plants Mashiach in a place where the forces of evil would never think to look. He plants it in this illicit relationship between Yehuda and Tamar. He plants it in the beginnings of David Amalek through Ruth, who was a Moabite, right? Not Jewish. He plants the roots of David Amalek in Sodom between a relationship between a father and a daughter when the father's drunk, okay? Through Yehuda and his descendants, the Jewish people the, uh, who are called Yehudim, we represent the true elevation of the element of fire, turning affluence and arrogance of Sodom into the humility and fearlessness that every Jew and Jewish leader needs to actualize and accomplish his mission in the world. Again, it's through Yehuda and his descendants that we are called today Yehudim. Right? We're not called Yisraelim, we're not called Ivrim, we're not called Yosephim, we're not called by any other tribe. But the tribe that represents gratitude, gratitude to Hashem, the Hodot, to thank, and at the same time admitting, admitting our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, our lowliness. That is the key to greatness, and that is the key to becoming a great Jewish leader and actualizing our potential. Okay, just before we end, just a couple of things I wanted to share with you um, about this month. Just one thing. So we're in the month of Teves. Happy Rosh Chodesh, everybody. Hanukkah always has the change of the month in it. And of course, Teves, as I said at the beginning, is again one of the darkest months. It's considered to be one of the saddest months. um, Just from Rabbi Buxbaum's book. He says about Tavis: This month comes at the heart of the cold and dark winter. It's also considered the third sad month, and contains a fast day for the siege on Jerusalem. The dark symbolism of this month is connected to the struggles of the element of earth. So we're back to our first element, right? We just had Sagittarius Kislev, fire, Hanukkah, with those lights that are meant to light up the darkness, spiritually keep us warm, keep us going, keep us growing. And now we're back into earth. And of course, earth is sadness. Earth is sluggishness. Earth is depression, anxiety, physicality, feeling like you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) Feeling like you just, Don't want to move and everything that that accompanies. So, this is the month. One of the ways, and this is, I'm going to leave you with this one of the ways that we can work on ourselves. um, Rabbi Buxbaum suggests, and he says this is an ancient Jewish practice, ancient Chinese secret, ancient Jewish secret, right? Is that depending on which element the month is that you're in, that's the element that you should focus on. So just like earth has all of these negative characteristics, right? We learned about the scarcity mindset. There's not enough for everybody, the jealousy, the anxiety, the worry, the sadness, right? Seasonal affective disorder and all of that, which we know to be true. What do we do to to use our earth element positively? Again, looking to the Avos and what we learned, we have to find energy and joy, right? We have to move physically, literally, right? Do some, put on some music and dance. Move your external because it affects your internal. We have to create routine and habits, right? We said about Avram Avinu, he gave us the morning. Dovening, because he got up early. Everything was getting up. Everything he did was with zrizos, right? We have a whole series on Zrizus. You can listen to it. Alacrity, moving, getting up, even when you don't feel like it, how it affects you internally, right? Going for a swim, whatever it is you can do to move. Go to Yorkdale. I went to Yorkdale last night. I didn't want to go, but I said, okay, I didn't move today at all. I'll go walk around. And I found other people there who were doing the same thing, right? Get a partner, drive to Yorkdale, do something this winter that gets you moving, gets you out. Because this is how we counteract the earth element, the month of Tevez that is a sad month that wants to pull us down. Okay? Have a routine, have habits, get up in the morning in Dublin. Get up in the morning and and, and do some stretching. Make yourself a routine and habits because these all help to counteract the natural, earthy, physical elements that we have within us that are contained in the month that we're in right now, outwardly, the world around us. And so this is how we can use it to grow. Okay, we'll talk more about this, God willing, next week. Thank you so much for joining me and have a wonderful week and it's so nice to see you all and thank uh, you for any questions anything, Before, anything yeah but yeah. would, would you consider your your um, talks as musser is this musser what what would be the title of your of all your talks i mean yeah basically basically you know, we're, we're sort of a musserbund so this is something that you know, is quite popular today. I mean, Dina Schoonmaker, who I haven't been really drawing from as much these days because I've been drawing from this book and other places. I mean, she calls her classes that she gives in in Jerusalem, Musar Vadim, which means that you are getting together, you know, to take one trait and really work on it. Right. What she would explain is that what I do in one class you know, a real muster would be working on talking about this idea for a year, for two right. years, from every single angle, yeah. Yeah. coming back every week and saying what I did well, what I, where I failed, what I want to do, what I, gets in the way of my doing and being able to do it as a group of women, right. you know. Um, I mean, I listened to one of them in Israel. They don't necessarily share that much, but they have a lot of wisdom, these women, because they're older and they've been through a lot. And there's so much that we can learn from each other. You know, unfortunately, you know, this would be obviously a very different class if we just, you know, opened it up and talked back and forth and, you know, focused on one point and how does it affect us in our daily life? And, but hopefully in the next class or two just um to wrap up i want to go through each of the elements or even if we're in a new month and it's the water month right the next month is going to be probably water or wind or whatever i'm not sure after teves you know to to come back to those negatives of water and maybe think about implementing one or two things in your month small things when it comes to water, you know, using pleasure in the right way, maybe bringing more pleasure into your life because you starve yourself from pleasure. You don't eat enough donuts like Sally on Hanukkah and buy the $6 jobs. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, like, you know, wherever we need to sort of rebalance ourselves, recalibrate figure out you know how we can bring in or take off or water the plant appropriately so that it feels good our relationships right water is all about relationships and emotions and creativity tapping into our own creativity doing what makes you feel alive and good and keeps you happy and buoyant right right so that's what i'd like to do is just sort of bring the elements in as we go through the year even if we're doing a different topic. So we don't lose the practicality. We've learned a lot of theory, right? We've learned a lot of theory in this series. So, bye Marlene, Any, anybody who needs to go, you can go. We've learned a lot of theory and have a great week. We've learned a lot of theory in these series and you know it's important. Uh, Whatever, I'll share it with you next week, but I'll share it again. But the the way that uh, Rabbi Buxbaum says in his book, he says, there were 10 frogs that sat on a log. Nine frogs decided to jump into the pool. How many were left? So the answer is 10, because the nine just decided to, they didn't actually do it, okay? So so that's his introduction to the fact that you can read a million self-help books You can join up to a million seminars and spend all kinds of money on all kinds of things. But, you know, he leads into this last part of his book by saying, if you don't sit down and say, I'm really going to work on not interrupting other people, my wind element, you know, my mind is so active and I so want to share my knowledge that sometimes I have this habit, let's say. But I'm going to really try to restrain myself, let the other person be center stage, do some real deep listening in a way that I don't normally do it, where I'm not thinking about what my answer is going to be and what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. And I'm going to, as soon as you finish, I'm going to give you the advice you need, right? No, just listening for listening's sake to make the other person feel heard and like I am center stage. I'm not being judged. I'm not being uh, evaluated. You're just listening to me. It's the greatest gift you can do for somebody. So I'm saying taking one little thing, whatever it is that is your stumbling block or that you really don't like about yourself. Why do I do that all the time? I wish I could be like so-and-so. I wish I could be as outward focused on people as, you know, whoever it is that that's your role model and, and making, you know, yourself a goal and saying, okay, I flubbed it this time. I did it again. Oh, look at that. I actually was, I actually did it well today. Right. And, and taking that for that month, let's say, that's your month's work that goes together with the element. And it also lets you know, wow, I really have a lot of wind, you know, or I'm really so earth, I really get sad, I really get down, you know, and, and it'll help us also like know what is our predominant trait, and what are the things that, we're, you know, that don't bother us as much, and that's what real muster is, real muster is not just talking about it, it's doing the work, is what I'm saying, but yes, this is a Muservad and I've always been attracted to character development since I was a kid. So it's just the part of Torah that speaks to me. It was actually, historically, it was a schism, right? And it was looked at suspiciously when Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and others began the musar movement, you know, much like the Hasidic movement. Anything that's new and different with a different emphasis is always looked at with a bit of paranoia by Jews because we always worry, you know, we're going to have Jesus next, you know? Like, you know, Jews have gone off and created all kinds of things and all kinds of isms, right? So we always are very slow to let something become established, right? And the Musser movement was something at its inception that they said, what do you have to learn Musser for? Just learn Torah. Why do you have to, before you... Go and open your Gemara, sit for a half an hour and learn about humility and that I have to be, you know, m- uh, more careful with my speech or, you know, just Torah is Torah. You don't need that extra stuff. If you learn Torah properly, all of that will come with it, right? It will make you humble. It will make you. And Rabbi Salant, who said, well, it's not. And so people have to really focus and in. Every yeshiva today, in most yeshivas that I know, and I'm talking about the list, every morning, the boys start with a half an hour of musr, meaning they open up a sefer that deals, you know, there's classic ones like the path of the just, duties of the heart, that were written to say, listen, those things that you know to be true are the things that you're most likely to also overlook and not do. To the extent that they're a truth that is clear, to that same degree, they're most easily forgotten. So if you don't focus and make this a practice every morning that will set your day, it's not just going to happen. That was the opinion of the Musar masters. I know that Lubavitchers and different Hasidic groups... The Boys and I just learned this recently because somebody's nephew, who's Hasidic and goes to the Lubavitch yeshiva here, said that they don't they don't even daven. They daven the minimum, and they start learning Hasidut. They start their day with Hasidus, which is all about you know more spiritual things about the soul and about your relationship with God and all kinds of stuff. And then they finish the davening, the main part of the davening. So they see it as so important. That they even insert it before they do their formal davening that the boys all have to sit for a half an hour and learn Hasidus, which is the inner torah right which is the more inner torah the kabbalah the spiritual the soul part of the torah right and of course when Hasidus began and hasidim they were also looked at suspiciously that's why you had the misnadim which are the opponents they're literally named opponents. Mitnagdim are the Jews that came from Lithuania, from the Vilna Gaon, right? They were opposed to Hasidut because they felt the Baal Shem Tov and all of his followers were starting a new religion. So anyway, it's all very interesting, but a little history lesson as an adjunct to our class. Thanks for asking. You got the long answer. <laughs> Interesting. That was interesting. That's okay. That's I love your wisdom. I love your answers. You're very inspirational, really. Thank you, Harriet. Very anyway. special lady.